Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the founder and editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode of Grinnell College's Artists and Authors podcast series. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Sandy Moffat on the show. Uh, Sandy has been at Grinnell for a very long time. I think since 1971. Isn't that right, Sandy? Very long time. Very long time. Well, we'll talk about how he got there. We'll talk about his experience teaching at Grinnell, how he got into theater, and his new book, which is called The Ghost of Craven Snug. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be um, here. Well, let's begin at the beginning. How, how did this is a Grinnell College podcast? How the heck did you end up at Grinnell College? Well, uh, it's a very simple answer to that. There was a job here. <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching at a small college in North Carolina, and, and things kind of went went uh, sour there for me. And a friend of mine was teaching here and had taken the job at Michigan. He called me up and said, there's a job at this little place in Grinnell College in Iowa. And I had to ask him where Iowa was. Right. And, uh, but then we came here thinking we'd spend a year and then go back to, to NC. And, and uh, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been 50 years. It's been a long year. Yeah, it's been a long year, is right. That's good. Um, so you're originally from North Carolina, is that right? I am, yeah. Uh-huh. And what were your impressions of Grinnell when you first got there? It was 1971. That was quite a year, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was quite a year. It was the, kind of the coming off of 1970 when they closed the, closed the college at the end of the year and didn't have graduation. And that was a big controversy. But my impressions were I, I had, uh, you know, I, we landed in Cedar Rapids and uh, this was in April, in early April. And we drove to Grinnell through that little back road, which you probably know well. I do. And uh, it was uh, the snow was melting. Uh, it was cloudy. Everything was ugly. And I thought this was ugly. <laughs> and I uh, couldn't wait to get away. But then the next day, the sun was shining. I was on the campus. It was a beautiful place. I loved the people that I met. First of all, the the other faculty and the staff, and then the students, and I just fell in love with the place. Who was president when you got there? Was it George Drake, or who was? I don't remember. Oh, Glenn Leggett. Yeah, right. Glenn Leggett. Yeah, I, I got to talk yeah, to George Drake, yeah. which was very nice before he most recently passed. And so yeah. you are a theater. Is it correct to say a theater person? Is that disparaging or? <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> and, and how did you get into theater in North Carolina of all places? Well, I, it, it's a, kind of a long story that I won't. I, that's what we like, long stories. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I went to undergraduate school at the University of North Carolina and did not do well. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I took a kind of a break of uh, three years in the, in the army and I came back and I decided I wanted to teach, and so I came back, majored in history, and uh, but I, for various reasons, got into some theater, uh, mainly because I wanted to meet some girls, and <laughs> and that was a good place. And uh, I noticed that theater professors were having a lot more fun than history professors. Yeah, they, I think that's generally true. And so I decided that uh, I might look into that. And finally, I got a graduate degree and ended up teaching theater. Uh -huh. And did you do a lot of acting yourself and writing I did, and things I like did this? Act. That's how I got started, uh, going 
to the Carolina Playmakers and trying out for a play and getting into a play. Uh, but then I, once I started directing, I fell in love with directing, and I haven't acted much since then. Mm -hmm. and, and how does one get into directing? Do you just to say, I'm a director? <laughs> uh, in a way, I, you know, I mean, going to school helps. Uh, and then I, I did some stage managing, both at, at uh, UNC and also as a professional stage manager. And uh, it's a really good job if you want to learn everything about theater. Uh, and uh, that kind of moved me into directing. Mm -hmm. And uh, w what was it like to direct plays? I guess this is a ridiculously general question, but at Grinnell, I mean, were the students keen to be in plays and things like this? They were, yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that impressed me about Grinnell was the talent that we had here. But on the other hand, the kind of attitude that Grinnell students had about theater, they were serious about it. They they wanted to do good work. Uh, they felt that it was an art, not just a not just a uh, uh, something to pass the time. But on the other hand, they weren't desperate like they are like some theater people who go to who go to uh, MFA programs and yeah. uh, theater schools. They 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 have a, a lot of options, and a number of them are well. A lot of students that have been here since I've been here are are in theater are making a living in theater, but mostly in, in unusual ways. There are not many Grinnell students who want to be movie stars or uh, necessarily on Broadway, but a lot of them want to, want to make something, want to do something. So there are little theaters in, uh, in Milwaukee, in uh, Kansas City, in Minneapolis uh, that, that Grinnell students have, have uh, founded and run for ever since I've been at Grinnell, I mean, for a long, long time. And that's what Grinnell theater students tend to do. Yeah, I, I think this is not widely known that there are these theater companies all over the United States. Yeah, I would I would say thousands of them. Yeah. So if you want to see, I mentioned earlier that I'd seen a production of Tartuffe you did. If you want to see Tartuffe, you probably can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I, just an anecdote. I had a friend at Grinnell, and he said, I want you to come to my production of Tartuffe. And he said, I said to him, I didn't know you acted. And he said, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. People, people kind of wander in out of curiosity and, and read for a part and end up being the lead in the show. And then and, uh, it's, it's really... That's the wonderful thing about doing it here at Grinnell. Do you have any particular highlights from the plays and things that you've... I don't want you to pick favorites, but things that you remember particularly? You know, I, I really remember them all. Yeah. Uh, the the, the uh, Grinnell Magazine, I think it was, asked me for a, a statement about what I liked about uh, what was important to me about Grinnell. And uh, or, or, or what was my favorite something in Grinnell... And I said, my favorite thing about Grinnell was walking into these theater spaces. I mean, even though I've been been uh, an emeritus professor for a number of years, walking into these theater spaces and, and seeing these students from five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, walking across the stage, and, and uh, they, just, they kind of all run together. But um, uh, it's hard to pick a favorite. Yeah, no, it must be very gratifying to see that, though, and to see them yeah. go on to new careers in theaters and things like this. I, I, well, I, I can... somewhere else. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's right. I I can tell you, I I never acted, and I always kind of wish I did because I uh, not not to, not to be uh, the opposite of humble, but I think I'd be good at it. But I never tried it. Maybe I will try it. I'm 61. I can still do it. <laughs> yeah, you're performing right now. Yeah, right. I am performing right now. That's right. Um, I know that you also at Grinnell did a lot of conservation work. Um, and this is of interest to me because I told you earlier that I'm from. Uh, Kansas, and there's something called the tall grass prairie there, which is the largest tall grass prairie extant uh, maybe in the world. Yeah. Um, and I spent a lot of time there hunting and fishing when I was growing up. Could you tell us about your conservation work in Iowa? Well, one of the things that has kept me here, aside from Grinnell College, was my falling in love with, with the land. Uh, you know, when people talk about uh, Iowa being a drive-thru state, and uh, and it is, if that's all you do, drive through it. <laughs> but little by little, I, I, I began to fall in love with, with this with this landscape in Iowa. Uh, we, we lived on a little farm when we were in North Carolina. Uh, Betty, my wife and I, who incidentally is also a Grinnell writer. And uh, uh, we lived on a farm in North Carolina. And when we got here, we immediately started looking for some place in the country. And we found a, a little four-acre old house out in the country, and then we moved there a year after we moved to Grinnell, and we lived there uh, for 40-odd years before we moved to where we are now in town. Uh, but little by little, I just came to love this land. I, I came to see, I mean, you got to look deep to find out about uh, Iowa land and Kansas too, I think. Uh, but once you start looking deep, you find, you find the kind of, diversity and wonder that you find that, that I knew in North Carolina, which incidentally had, had an ocean and, and mountains. Yeah. Um, so I, I began to, uh, you know, began to love the land. And then in addition to that, the um, things started deteriorating around me. And that was the result of, of a lot of changes in the way Iowa generally approached the land. Uh, I saw what I what I consider a major and, and serious deterioration of the landscape as a result of, of large uh, corporate agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that has kind of been heartbreaking to me. And I just uh, early on decided I wanted to do whatever I could to counter that. Now, what I do is nothing compared to a 10,000 acre farm. But what I do is something if you get down and look deeply at it. So little by little, I started, uh, first of all, uh, doing prairie around in, in our little four acres. And then I managed to buy some land south of town. And I put it I put it into restoration in the prairie. It had woodland that I was working on to, uh, to enhance. Then we managed to buy a farm across the road from our house, and this was bigger, and I put that in a conservation easement and started using CRP to put put in prairie there. What's CRP? Conservation Reserve Program. Uh-huh. And what is that exactly? It essentially rents your land if you will put it into various conservation practices. And so I was able to do that. Uh, to get some income from my land, I was still making payments on it, and uh, and also at the same time to begin to restore it in the prairie. So that's 125 acres now that essentially is all 
uh, restoration, all all native. Mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, and 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 is this you know again my only experience is in Kansas on the tall grass prairie. Is this tall grass prairie? What is the? Yeah, it's it is it is exactly what you call tall grass prairie, which which you know runs down the Midwest from actually southern Minnesota all the way down into yeah. northern. And Kansas and Iowa are the are the kind of main areas of it. And and at one time all of Iowa was tall grass prairie. And so Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The the only reason I can tell you this is in what an area called the Flint Hills in Kansas. It's right in central Kansas. And the only reason it wasn't put under cult cultivation is that there are huge um limestone deposits in it. And so it can't be plowed. And so th this was an area where they still um they put cattle out on it, but they couldn't do much else with it outside the bottomland. They could farm the bottomland, but the the tall grass prairie itself was completely preserved and still is to this day. And I remember when they created the tall grass prairie in Kansas, it was a uh, it was quite an effort. Let's put it that way um, to get the ranchers. They were ranchers and not really farmers on board with taking what was a huge area, like practically the size of I don't know Delaware, um, essentially out of production. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the curse of Iowa is that it has this wonderful, rich land. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a problem. I'm doing air quotes here. You can't see that on the uh, on the audio, but yeah, it is. Anything will grow there. But anyway, I, I, I write about that quite a lot in the book. Yeah. Uh, oh, great. Well, let, let's turn to the book. The book is called "The Ghost of Craven Snugs." Why did you write it? Uh, to to say something about what was happening in the state of Iowa. There's a writer named Carl Hyacin. I don't know whether you ever. Yeah, heard I do. Of him. Uh, but he's a native Floridian, and he just absolutely hates what has happened to his state with the development and the changes and draining swamps and all of this. And years ago, I was with a group of friends and we were talking about Carl Hyacin. And I said, you know, Iowa needs a Carl Hyacin. And uh, then I forgot about that, but then I, <laughs> and so when I retired, I, I wrote some short stories and uh, continued to write short stories. Uh, but then when the pandemic came along, I said, I'm going to try to write a novel. And I want it to be two things. I want it to be readable and funny. And I wanted to say some stuff that's serious. And so that's, that's why I approached this thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what were you hoping people will take away from the novel? Well, a, a lot of people already have talked about saying, you know, this is what somebody should have, should be saying about what's happening to the Iowa countryside. I mean, in some ways, they're, they're turning Iowa into a kind of triage. You know, they're saying, we just ruined the environment of Iowa so we can produce all this ethanol and all these pigs and all of this stuff. And uh, <clears throat> and then a lot of the other states have national parks and be pretty. And, and uh, people from Iowa can go to these other places to see the outdoors and so uh, well it's it's particularly i mean for a reason that you mentioned it's particularly tough in iowa because the land is so good it's yeah. uh, it's it's really you know i my ancestors uh, on my mother's side were german and they came in the 1840s to ohio and i happen to know that they were amazed by ohio <laughs> they liked ohio a lot <laughs> Yeah, but the problem is it's not it's it's not people like your grandmother that are doing this anymore. It's people who don't even live in Iowa. 
Right. Thousands and thousands of acres, and they're they're mining it for every little soybean and every little grain of corn they can get, and uh, and just doing incredible damage. I mean, I, I've I've read a little bit about this, but I've been told that multinationals are now buying a lot of farmland. Is that right? I mean, because in my day, back in Kansas, you literally literally had single family farms, and they owned it, and that was that. Like my grandfather, he owned this essentially part of the tall grass prairie and some bottom land he farmed it that was that yeah there are two there are two kinds of people buying buying farmland there there are the the people who, who farm and when land comes for sale adjoining their farms they will pay them almost anything yeah I, re I remember this well don't want anyone else there uh, which is which is okay that's good but then there are also there's a huge market for it an investment market for it I mean, the price the, the price of land has gone up incredibly, way beyond what can be, uh, what what can be earned from, and uh, and people are investing in this not not to grow crops, but investing in this the idea that it's, next year it's gonna it's gonna increase ten percent in value. Right. So there's a lot of speculation in land then among these. I mean, I've been told that like Bill Gates owns hundreds of thousands of acres and, you know. Yeah, I, think, I mean, there, yes, there is a lot of speculation. Yeah. And uh, if, uh, are there any efforts among farmers to try to do anything about this? Is there a farmer's union or anything like this that attempts to, you know, because one of the things I do remember is if the, if the if the farm next to yours came up for sale, you really wanted to buy that. That, that you really wanted to buy it, but the, you say that the farmers are now being priced out. Yeah, a lot of them are. A lot of them are. I mean, there's there's some farmers that live on the land, and they're big farmers, and they're very successful. But the situation is that they're forced into farming in the way that gets us gets the most profit today, and pays little attention to what what it's going to be like tomorrow. Yeah, I uh, my my grandfather used to say that. Um, a farmer was a mechanic who liked to garden <laughs> because I, I remember the machinery. Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And and you know, if you walk by a typical farm today, you you, you see a couple of million dollars worth of machinery. Stuff. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. These machines are truly incredible. I remember I've ridden on some of them myself, and they are uh, they're now like GPS guided. Yep. And I mean, they're astounding things, and they do cost a, a small fortune to operate. Um, I remember um, combine crews coming through Kansas. You know, they'd start in Texas and end up in Dakota. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh -huh. because people didn't own their own combines; they were too expensive. Um, so, to go back to that question, is there any effort to kind of keep this uh, Iowa farmland in the hands of Iowans? Is there anything that can be done about this? There. Excuse me. There is an effort. Uh, there's a group uh, in Iowa called Iowa Farmer Iowa Farmers Union. Yeah, which is uh, it's a kind of counterpart to the uh, Farm Bureau. Uh, the Farm Bureau is a huge national. Uh, uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, organization, I guess, not a corporation. Organization of uh, of farmers, but it does all sorts of things. I mean, Farm Bureau is an insurance company. Too. Yeah, uh, you know, Farm Bureau is is uh, is designed for farmers who want to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The Farmers Union is made up of, of smaller farmers, uh, a lot of uh, farm to market people who who raise who 
you know, who are in the community farm, farm yeah. organization. Uh, and yes, this is an organization that, that's fighting against hugeness. But uh, whether or not it's making any inroads, I don't know. Yeah, I, I you you don't know this, but I used to be a professor at the University of Iowa, and every Sunday I would go to the farmers market there. Where and these were people that had truck farms. I don't know if people know what a truck farm is, but uh, and they would bring local produce. Is there that kind of thing going on in Grinnell now? Oh yeah, there's, a, <clears throat> there's one one guy who's a, a a Grinnell grad, graduated from Grinnell. I would say about five or six years ago. Uh huh. <clears throat> He's got a wonderful little farm, uh, grows all kinds of vegetables. We still get them once a week. He'll he'll do it as long as he can into the winter. Uh, he has a greenhouse. And, yeah, uh, yeah. He has a he has a, a big market for what he's doing. And he, I think he's doing okay. I think he's making. Yeah, it. that's good. I mean, I I know I know that in Iowa City that the farmers market was a big deal, and that's pretty yeah. much where where you went to go meet people on Sunday. <laughs> and and uh, it's Thursday here, so that's it. Is that is that right? Are you growing anything yourself? No. You know, <laughs> when we first moved out into the country, we we uh, had a garden, and <clears throat> you know, grew tomatoes and zucchini and everything. <clears throat> and then we kept coming home, and there'd be these little plastic bags hanging on our door, full of tomatoes. Full of tomatoes. <laughs> and, and so we kind of said, "Why do we?" Why do we go out there and dig in the garden when we? So my garden is the prairie. Um, uh, yeah, I go and see that. Uh, yeah, are, are Grinnell students involved at all in this conversation conservation work? They are. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> there is a uh, there. There's a group called the Center for, or, or a, a part of Grinnell called the Center for Prairie Studies, and uh, you probably remember John Anderson. I totally remember John Anderson. Yes, he was very big in starting this, and it's a very active student group, student and faculty group, that does all all sorts of things about conservation and prairie and so forth. So, yeah, there are a lot of students who are who are very interested in in this kind of thing. Well, it's funny because again, kind of anecdote. I mean, I I do come from kind of a farming background on one side and. When I got to Grinnell, I took a class from Andelson, or might have been, might have been Christensen, I don't remember which, but they took us out to a preserve, uh -huh. and we counted bugs, and we counted different sorts of species and things like this, and I remember thinking, I didn't know anything about that, because the you know what my grandfather did was essentially industrial ranching and farming. Uh -huh. we, we didn't, that, it, it was a very different thing. It was more like work on this tractor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and once you get the tractor running and get the gps that you don't have to do it yeah that, that's right we were not interested in conservation as such um well that's very good i want to thank you very much for spending time with us today to talk about this let me say again that we've been talking to sandy moffett uh his book is called the ghost of craven snugs and it is widely available you can get it all over the place sandy thanks so much for being with us today thank you i enjoyed it thanks for having me